Okay, so today our speaker, I'm really excited. Um, we've been really excited to bring somebody in who specializes working with children. I met Courtney when I was a child. I moved to Colorado Springs in eighth grade and I didn't know anybody at my new school and she and her mom hosted a slumber party for all the new girls in eighth grade. And it was so fun to be included and I was the only one that married her younger brother at the slumber party. So <laughs> we waited a while after the slumber party to get married. Um, but Courtney, I've seen her shine in so many areas over the like two decades of friendship. Um, but her uh, passion for children and her desire to help them shine so bright as a therapist. And we're just really honored to have her today. Courtney Alberts, guys. Well, um, I'm usually not used to speaking in front of this many people. Usually it's one-on-one -on -one or me on the ground with a little kid. So I've got a really fancy like binder here. <laughs> and I definitely don't usually hold the microphone. So anyway, if, if that seems a little unnatural, it's because it is. Um, but I am so excited to be here. I absolutely adore Sarah and um, have so much respect for you know everything that she does. And you all probably know a lot about that. But she talks so much about this group. And I, um, her mom posted something about this group on Instagram, I think it was. So I watched the video and I was like, oh my gosh, this is so cool. And there isn't, um, in the church I go to, there isn't anything like this. So I just think it's so awesome. And I jumped at the opportunity to come like witness what this is like. So I'm so happy to be here. And um, yeah. So Courtney, um, thanks for driving down from Evergreen. Uh, Courtney works in Denver. She lives just outside of Denver. And um, tell us a little bit about what you do um, at work okay. right now. So I, um, I've had a lot of experience. I, I worked in um, residential treatment for a long time. I worked in um, children's hospital for a long time, the schools. Um, I was in private practice for a really long time and then decided I really don't like owning my own business. And then I got the opportunity to become a pediatrician at, uh, I mean, sorry, I, I got an opportunity to become a therapist at a pediatrician. And I love, love, love what I do. It's so great because, you know, any one of you might walk in and say um, at your child's well visit and say hey my kiddo seems a little worried and then I pop in and I say like hey here's what I think we should do tell me more about it and we kind of develop a plan and I love that so I either see them short term or we kind of hook them up with resources to do so so I connect people with you know, uh, developmental testing, um, resources as far as like uh, to help with learning disabilities, everything from, you know, we talk about like, you know, family dynamics. Um, you know, I work with a ton of postpartum moms, um, you know, just struggling themselves. I also work with a lot of dads like going through hard times. So kind of the full spectrum. Um, and I absolutely love it. And one thing we were really excited about about having her here today to answer your questions is uh, as we've talked about uh, her work that she does, it's, it's often just like a five-minute question that a parent has mm -hmm. that needs to be answered, and they can get that addressed and avoid 
making an appointment with a therapist and going through that whole referral process. It's just like they just need access to somebody who specializes with children. So that's what we are hoping to give you all today. But we have um, kind of four of the most common questions that Courtney gets asked that we're going to discuss first, and then we'll open it up to you all. So be thinking of what your questions are for when we're done with this. Um, Okay, so the first one... um, This is something that Holly and I have been really candid about in this group, um, about how we both struggled with postpartum anxiety, but um, uh, a lot of the people in our group weren't there when we, they're new since we discussed this. Um, So, okay, the question is, I am having a hard time since I had a baby. How do I know when it's postpartum depression or anxiety or just adjustment? Yeah, this is so common. Um, You know, I have moms that come in and I'm like, you know, they get, you all fill out those screens when you go in, um, you know, at your baby's appointments. And sometimes I'll get flagged or you all will get flagged and I'd walk in and I'll be like, how you doing? And they're like, not well, but you know, I'm just, I'm adjusting. I'll be okay. And I'm like, you know what? Like, it seems like it's, it's really like affecting you. It's really affecting the baby. It's really affecting your family. Let's talk more about that. And they're like, no, I'm fine. Right. And you know, I won't hear from them for a while. And I feel like there's this such a resistance to kind of call or say that I'm struggling with postpartum depression. Now there's a huge push to recognize postpartum anxiety. We, we kind of put them under the umbrella of a perinatal mood disorder. Okay. And what we know is one in seven moms reports that they struggle with this. One in seven that they report. And we know we as women hide things really, really well. Okay. So think about what the accurate statistics are, right? So the thing is, is there's been a real um, conflict in the mental health world to call this uh, to call this postpartum depression or anxiety, and not just general depression and general anxiety. And I think calling it something separate is what makes it so stigmatized a lot of times. Because I don't know about you all, but even as a mental health professional, I feel like I confuse postpartum depression with postpartum psychosis, meaning that I felt like if I admitted to people that I was dealing with depression and anxiety, they thought I was going to kill my baby, right? I mean, I feel like uh, I love the work like Brooke Shields did and kind of, you know, and a lot of women in like, you know, pop culture and Hollywood are doing. But I think a lot of times it's the extreme cases that get a lot of, you know, the publicity. And so I think as moms, when we admit to somebody, I'm feeling really depressed, that's kind of what we're scared of. A lot of women are also really scared their babies are going to be taken away. I mean, I, I, I didn't even realize this, but they feel like they might be committed. Like all these really, really big fears that women are dealing with. And so I think it's so important to just like normalize a name, like, hey, this is what you're going through and everything you just said makes you qualified for a diagnosis of postpartum depression or anxiety, right? Um, And the reason I think it can be helpful to diagnose it and to name it is because then there's a whole bunch of resources for you, right? Then you can Google it. I have postpartum depression. I need help, right? Versus like, I feel tired, right? Or something else. So, it's not, it's not super important that you label yourself. But with that label can also come normalization of like, I'm really struggling, right? And this is a way to communicate to other people why and what I'm struggling with. Um, so 
Um, I think the other thing that's really confusing is we're educated about postpartum depression right after we had a baby. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) Which is hilarious. I'm like, um, I don't have time to learn about all of my problems. I'm dealing with taking care of this baby. (laughs) Totally. Or like you just give birth and they're like, by the way, if you start feeling depressed, here's what I need you to do. And you're like, sorry, what? I'm like, I'm depressed. I can't, I can't process that right (laughs) now. Um, so, so I, um, I'm wondering if there's any studies that have been done that you know of that like, um, addressing it, shortening the length that you're dealing with it, like, like kind of like getting in front of it, like naming it Mm -hmm. and, and that like shortening the time that you're actually dealing with it. Because Uh, I think that after my second child, I was dealing with it for a while before I actually named my postpartum anxiety. And then it took a while to kind of like get back. Well, that's tricky because I think there can be a lot of elements to that. So I don't think there's any study that I know of with like that direct kind of connection. But I do know that there's a lot of side effects and consequences of postpartum depression and anxiety that can be mitigated if we catch it early. And we can kind of talk a little bit about that. But I think um, I'd like to read to rehearse kind of and remind you all what the symptoms of like postpartum depression and anxiety are (laughs) because I think it kind of describes what being a mom's like sometimes, which can be really confusing of like, is this just being a mom or am I really depressed, right? So get this one. This is the first one mentioned everywhere. Chronic feelings of guilt or worthlessness. Um, Check. (laughs) Right? Ready for this one? Feelings of failure as a mother. Check. (laughs) Right? Okay, this one's my favorite. Um, loss of interest in a previously enjoyable act or previously enjoyable activities. Or your new hobby is going to the grocery store alone. <laughs> right? That's the only you thing didn't that previously you previously enjoy in. that? Oh, no. I used to think it was just getting food. And yeah. now it's a little vacation. Totally. <laughs> Listening to the songs that were popular in my youth. Right? Totally. <laughs> like the gangster rap. Yeah. Totally. Um, <laughs> So the next one is intense feelings of despair interfering with daily responsibilities of self-care. I mean, the amount of time we as moms go without showers or eating or like basic self-care is crazy. And like, and everybody laughs about it, right? Um, Thoughts of harming self or baby. These are things we like to keep really secret, but they're very, very, very common. And I do want to emphasize thoughts, right? This isn't intentions, plans, things like that. Thoughts, okay? We'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, this This one's also very hilarious. Withdrawing from your partner or other close relationships. I mean, who goes out with their girlfriends as much as they used to when they're single when you have a new baby? No, you're in bed from 8 p.m. to 8 a.m. and you're not rested when you get out of bed. Totally. Just up nursing. <laughs> totally. And, and what is your relationship with your husband? Just super close right after you push that baby out. I'm like, please get the, get the nipple cream. <laughs> yeah, it totally changes. And so... Um, oh, this is, this is also funny. I, I, or not funny. I feel like it's something that's so abstract 
and women are like, how do I know, right? Trouble bonding with baby. It's like, well, what does that even mean? I've never had a baby before, or maybe you have, but like, am I doing it right? What does this look like? So I say that because these are all like the things that you go in and they're screening you for, and you're like, yeah, and you're checking the boxes, and you're like, oh my gosh, are they going to flag me? Are they going to take my baby away? But it's like so normal that a lot of women are experiencing this. As as a healthcare professional, um, what's your what's your impression of a mom who's checking all of these? Like, do you do you judge her? Well, for- I would say that I actually judge the moms who are like, everything's great. I love this so much. Nothing has changed, and I'm like, put her at the top of my list, right? Um, but. I, I say all that not to take these symptoms seriously, I mean, not to have you take these symptoms seriously, but to kind of normalize why a lot of times we don't take this, like, like for the weight that it is, right? Um, but I think what's so important about all this is that um, there's so many different times in our life where people experience depressive episodes, okay? Um, if you have a loss in your life, a transition in your life, um, you have a Re- pandemic? <laughs> yes. I forgot to add that to the list. Everything hasn't been updated yet. And so what's crazy, though, also a huge time of um, risk for a lot of people to develop depressive episodes is when they have hormonal changes. So like adolescence, um, uh, menopause, um, you know, around women's like cycles, things like that. So here we are, right? We have a lack of sleep, loss of independence, change in relationship, stress, change in body, isolation, a lot of times trauma related to our birth or maybe conditions we had prior to the birth. Why, why are we stigmatizing this depressive episode, right? And sometimes it can be an episode, sometimes it can be longer lasting, okay? So I, 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 I just want to kind of set the stage for it's okay that we're struggling, okay? And I think a lot of times as Christians, especially Christian moms, we're like, you know, if I'm struggling or I'm depressed or I'm anxious, it means that I'm not believing the truths that, like, God has given me. And the thing is, is that God never expects us to, like, separate our emotions, right? We, we can be both depressed and trying to trust God every single day. We can be so anxious we can't even get out of bed and working so hard to trust God and saying that we believe his promises, okay? And God doesn't want us to say, I feel fine, I feel fine, everything's great. You can be struggling and so depressed and so dark and still believe in God, okay? And God does not want us to, to deny that. Yeah. And, and that's so good. And I'm wondering, so, okay, so when do you seek help? And, and are there some things that you should try? Yeah. Um, like if somebody is dealing with this, let's say, um, like they think maybe this is just mild. Like, mm-hmm. are there some things that you would recommend that people try before they're like seeking help? Yeah, I, I think that's the main reason people don't get help a lot of times. They're like, oh, I'm just adjusting. But so what we know is that the it's called the baby blues, right? Is like that first couple weeks, um, you know, after you have the baby where you're like adjusting. In my like hindsight, that was like the easiest period, <laughs> right? But they say that that's like the period where you're adjusting to your hormones and they start to settle at about two weeks. 
So after that, it starts to fall into the category of postpartum depression or anxiety, okay? But this, the new definition of this, which I absolutely love because we know over 50% of women start having these symptoms in pregnancy. And then they're also extending this period to be in um, a year after birth too. Because a lot of us have like older kids and we're like, is this still postpartum depression? What do do I even call this? But um, after that year-long period, it's just called depression, right? Anxiety, generalized depression, anxiety. You know, it can go into a lot of different things, okay? And so I encourage you to get help if you feel like you can't do it alone. If you feel like, I like to think about it like we're swimming, okay? And your head is like, you're treading water and you're feeling so weak that your head is starting to go under, right? You think about it like sometimes you're, you're swimming, you're swimming, and you're like, oh my gosh, I can't do this anymore. And you feel like you're going to go under. Try to get help before that happens, okay? Because what we know is the number one thing that that baby needs outside of food, right, and the basic care is they need that secure connection with their mama, Okay? And that secure connection cannot happen if you are just totally zoned out and a a zombie, okay? And so we think it's selfish to go get help and to go get support, but that's the best thing we can do for our baby, okay? When we're stressed out and anxious, we know that the cortisol levels in our babies are heightened, okay? And so if we can start to get some tools to handle that, that's such a great thing we can do for our babies, So I would say, try to think about that swimming analogy, okay? You don't want to get to the place, especially when you're raising a baby, where your head's going under, okay? And the other thing is, is I used to work so hard to get help for women um, that was a cheat... Uh, that was affordable, that they could get to, that they could bring their baby to. With COVID, there's so many opportunities. I see so many women where like they're breastfeeding and we're on the phone and they have to set me down every now and then to clean up sped up. Like, I mean, it's awesome. There's so many groups. Um, I'm going to send out a resource list, but like um, Postpartum Support International has free groups for women with like military moms, um, postpartum moms, NICU moms, postpartum dads. Um, There's so many different support groups. So to answer your question, there's so many levels of help, okay? Whether you're feeling paralyzed by this stuff or just like, hey, I feel like this is a little bit more than I could handle, there's resources. So resources from uh, books, websites, um, blogs. Um, Postpartum Support International has not only those groups, but they also have a provider list. Um, so it's everything. But first we have to name it in order to know what to look for, okay? I love that. Thank yeah. you so much. Yeah. And I'm excited that you have that all those resources. Mm-hmm. So everybody can check those out in the follow-up email that we'll send out after this group. Um, It's so funny. Uh, I'm just now starting to see with our almost two-year-old some of the, like, anger stuff that we're going to talk about next. Just kind of normal age-appropriate stuff, but, um, like, just independence. It's so so appropriate for his development. But... um, like I was making dinner the other night and he was, I put him in his high chair. I knew he was starving and he's been resisting eating veggies. Um, he used to be such a great eater. And then he was resisting, he's been resisting lately. So I put only like some green beans on his tray and I'm bringing stuff in and I come back in and he had this little cup and he was like putting one by one, the green beans in the cup and going, yucky, yucky, yucky. And then he like chucked it across the room. I was like, okay. 
you communicated to me. Um, okay, so the next question is, my child has an anger problem. How can I best support them? Oh my goodness. Well, I have lots of experience with this too, because turns out like going to school for a really long time doesn't mean that your children won't struggle. <laughs> so, I mean, I think this is one of the things where like it caught me so off guard dealing with this with one of my kids. And it was one of the hardest thing and still can be one of the hardest things that I deal with. But um, I think one of the best things to understand with anger is that anger stands up for softer emotions, okay? So when you see an angry child, okay, or a child with really big emotion, like, you you think that this is standing up for something. I like to think of it as, like, a big brother, right? Like, excuse me, you made me so mad, I'm going to get angry, right? So the best thing you can do for your child is really understand what's their anger standing up for, okay? This is where we as parents can make a big difference, okay? Can you give us some examples of some of those emotions that it would be standing up for? Absolutely. So a lot of times it's... um, Embarrassment is a huge one. Jealousy is a huge one. Um, so a lot of times it tells us that our kids are, um, are not doing okay. Like we might be at a birthday party and the kid gets really angry or something. It can a lot of times stand for overwhelm. Like this is too much, mom. This is too much. So if instead we're like, hey, stop being angry. Go sit in the corner, right? We've missed an opportunity to address the thing that our anger is standing up for. So th- I think... If the reason this is so important is because think about when you see an angry person, what do you want to do? You want to avoid them, right? But when you see somebody who's hurting or overwhelmed, what do you want to do? You want to go towards them and support them. And that's what our children need when they're angry. But a lot of times we're like, go to your room, right? And that's the opposite of what they need, okay? So try that on for size. I guarantee it's going to make you be more proud of your approaches as a mom. That's so good. That's really, I like that. I also, I am obsessed with Paul Tripp. Um, He's like my favorite, um, my favorite. uh, I love his resources on parenting. He has a wonderful book. Um, It's like parenting the 14 biblical something. Anyway, um, he, he has this concept that I like to think about that we're first responders to our kids. Okay. So think about when we get in a car crash or something, Let's say we're a teenager and we get in a car crash and a first responder comes. They're not like, hey, you are driving too fast. Like, stop doing that. Right. No, they are comforting us. They are like making sure we're okay. So when you see your kid with these really, really big emotions, our first thing is to check in with them to provide that comfort and that connection. And when that storm is calmed, that's where we can work on problem solving. That's where I would suggest help your kid identify those triggers. Help them identify when they're jealous, when they're overwhelmed, those kind of things. And what can we do if we get that way, right? Another really big thing is modeling, right? I don't know about you, but I never get angry. Me neither. Yeah. Well, it's 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 a it's. <laughs> that's a flag. Yeah, that, that's also a flag. Um, so I think the other huge thing we can do, I don't know if you all have learned this yet in your parenting journey, but kids don't like to be told what to do, right? <laughs> is that just my what? kids? Yeah, no. But how they learn so well is through our modeling. And so an example of that might be you're driving down the road and somebody cuts you off, Right. And in that righteous anger, I'm like, oh my gosh, that guy's such a jerk, right? And my kids are in the backseat like, oh my gosh, mom's going crazy. 
And then I'm like, you know what, guys, I'm really angry right now. What do you think was behind mom's anger? Mom was scared, okay? What, what do you think I could have told myself about this instead that would have changed my reaction a little bit, right? Why do you think that guy was being kind of aggressive towards us? And then my kids will be like, oh, he's having a bad day at work, or maybe he's stressed out about something. And this is such a great model for people not only to experience their own anger, but also experience the anger of other people to know there's something behind it. And so for me, then I'll be like, what do you think God would have me do <laughs> if, if you know, somebody was like this? What do you think my response could have been to somebody stressed out in front of me? And then that's where the kids can kind of you know, learn to look at their own heart when they're feeling angry and apply those principles versus saying, you need to go memorize five scriptures, right? Do it with yourself, and then the kids will learn to model that. I love that. And I've seen Courtney do that. She really does do that in real life. <laughs> oh, she, she doesn't see me that much. <laughs> no, just kidding. <laughs> okay, here's a big one. Uh, my husband and I have different parenting strategies. How do I get him to change? <laughs> Notice that last part. I had to include that. So this is probably one of the most common things that I deal with. Um, I think it is a huge problem. And... I, in all my spare time, I would, if somebody needs to write a book, okay? And I think, um, I have, I, I really believe that there's a few reasons why this is a huge conflict, okay? Um, first of all, is that as women, we are like, in groups like this, we're constantly socializing, we're constantly Googling, we're reading, we're doing all this research on how to parent, Right? Men don't typically do that, okay? They're not, like, staying up late at night reading books on anxiety or parenting or, like, talking to their girlfriends. I mean, their boyfriends or guy friends or whatever about it, right? No, they don't typically do that, right? And so when they become parents, typically the way they respond is the way they were parented or as a reaction to how they were parented, okay? So these are two hugely colliding forces. And then I think what happens also is that there's this idea that the, that the dad needs to be this enforcer, right? This authoritarian kind of figure, right? Wait till your dad gets home. And yes, it's kind of old school, but I feel like a, a lot of dads still kind of feel like that's their role. And so I think we, we kind of were colliding forces here, right? And then also, we're mama bears, right? So if we see something done towards our child that we don't like, it brings up a lot of emotion in us. And how we have that emotion towards our partner is really, can really add to a lot of conflict. So that's kind of my conceptualization about why it happens, but we can also talk about what we can do because I know that that would probably be helpful. Right. Yeah, I remember when, um, I mean, I was around babies so much growing oh, that's up. That's a great point, yeah. I, would, I knew what to do. It was a natural mom. I knew exactly how to care for a baby. Mm-hmm. And my husband, I remember him watching this like, DVD of like how to calm a baby down and he's like super smart studious guy he's like taking notes and then he followed the exact instructions from the DVD for like a year and and he like knew and it was so weird and robotic to me that you would have to like learn how to comfort a baby but I think about he's the youngest kid in his family it's not like he was babysitting growing up like and I had a niece and nephew when I was like in high school and so I like grew up with babies so it's just like he is coming at it from a totally different perspective and by the time we had our third kid like he was just 
so much more natural with it. But like, I remember just thinking like, what? We're like not on the same page like about that. Absolutely. And I think I talk with moms all the time who are like, my husband does not know what he's doing. Like you should see him change a diaper or he just doesn't do it right. And I'm like, what kind of help is he giving you through the night? And they're, they're like, none, because he doesn't do it right. Right. And yes, we can. I, I love that you brought up that socialization piece. Like we're we're usually so much more experienced. But in that we kind of judge, judge our husbands the way they do things. And that kind of sends a message of incompetence to dads a lot of times. And a lot of times that gets bigger and bigger until they're like older and older. And we're growing resentful that they're not helping more. Right. So we're like and not to say that's the only issue. Right. That we're causing them not to help or whatever. But it's a huge part of it about why men don't feel competent in doing that is that we're always like, that's not how you do it. Stop it. And my biggest recommendation to that is, is like, is it really a huge deal if the baby leaks, if their diaper's not put on? Not, not the end of the world. What is great is if you're like, thank you so much for changing that diaper. That was really, really helpful, right? And you might change it real quick in the corner, right? But but saying that versus like, you don't do it right. This is how you do it, right? Or this is how you shush them. Or as they get older, um, like that's not how we talk to them, right? We want to always try to make men feel like they're capable of doing those things um, and that we're not constantly judging them because that's a, a huge issue. Totally. I love that. Okay. Um, I do have a couple notes on like how to kind of deal with conflicts. Do we have time for yes. that? Okay. Yeah. So... The biggest thing I would recommend if you're having a conflict with with your spouse about like how to raise kids, and I'm gonna I'm gonna say dads, okay, because we're uh, it's it's a typical dynamic that the mom is the nurturer and the dad is more of the enforcer, and this can be like a huge thing. So if you are having a conflict like that, biggest advice is do not make do stay composed do not handle it in the moment right we're like i said we're mama bears right we're we're protecting our child and that usually can come across really harshly harshly to our husbands um so tr- i i recommend uh, addressing this proactively try to have like a weekly check-in of like how are things going <laughs> right I know we're all tired, but proactive work as parents and couples is so important. So this is like a weekly check-in, maybe like a Sunday night of like, how do you think things are going? How do you think sleep's going? How do you think we should address this? Versus in the moment when you notice something you don't like that they are doing, being like, stop doing that, right? Nobody ever learns well during that or nobody ever connects well during that. People get defensive, okay? So try to be really proactive. Um, Yeah, I remember like, the thing that was kind of a game changer for us was planning ahead, like, um, like in those early days of parenting when you're like, I was so like foggy, like tired, but I think, um, I realized I was getting upset every time we were leaving the house and it was because I was doing everything, but he didn't know what to do. And finally we realized, oh my gosh, like he could do, like we made a little spreadsheet, like that's like his love language. So like, so we made a little spreadsheet of like, um, how to, how to pack the diaper bag. Like, what do we need before right. we leave? And I knew everything. Right. And I expected him to know that, but I right. was like tired and actually communicating and that. And you were assuming, right? And I assumed that he also knew you need like an outfit, an extra outfit. You right. need binkies, you need whatever. Um, and so that's like carried on as our kids get older. We like um, 
kind of have these like kind of vision casting sessions. Like what kind of parents do we want to be? What kind of tone do we want to have in our home? Being intentional. Yeah. You can't do that in the moment. And now it's more kind of like sometimes I'm not doing it and he is. And then like we reverse roles sometimes. Like he's not, you know, keeping the like kind of tone we want in our home. And then I'm like the one who's like anchoring. And then we like... Right. It's, I don't need to say anything to him because we already know what our goals are and we fail sometimes. Right. But it's like really nice to right. have that commonality. Well, and what do you think would have happened if you would have just stuck with the assumption that he didn't care oh, or was ignoring resentment. you? And yeah, and how often do we skip over opportunities like that in our relationships and just kind of move through life because we're tired, right? And we don't have the energy for it. So that's a great example of, of being proactive and planning I also think the other thing is, is just like we were talking about anger with kids. Whenever we see men being harsh as fathers, think about what's behind that harshness, right? So there's softer emotions there, and we often only receive it as harshness sometimes. Um, and we're not seeing that they're scared, right? They're scared of, you know, having a disrespectful child. Or they're scared that, like, you know, their child's never going to stop crying. Or they're scared they're a bad dad. A lot of times with men, it's fear-based, okay? And again, that if we think about men as angry or harsh or any of those other things it pushes us away from them. But if you think about what's behind that, that draws us near. And then that is what where change can happen. So totally recommend that as well. Um, oh, also, just in all of this, <laughs> I know that we're up on research a lot of times as mom. But like, I think a lot of times as women, we approach these kind of conversations as like, I'm going to, co- to convince them, I'm going to change them, I'm going to win, Right. And what do you think that energy is like as we enter our conversation, right? Proactive or not, that's not received well by anybody. So seek to understand, seek to collaborate. Because at the end, we're only in control of us, okay? We cannot change them, but it's a, it's a journey, okay? This is not about a competition or winning them over or anything else. But try to think about it as a journey in a way that God can use this to refine your relationship, Okay? Um, okay, so this is the last question, and then we're going to open it up to you all. Uh, my daughter is scared of trying new things and meeting new people. How do I know when to comfort her versus push her? Yeah, this is a hard one. Um, like I said, I think, you know, I've experienced this as a mom um, as well as professionally, and I think everything I read, it's like in the moment I'm like, that doesn't work. That doesn't work, right? Um, but... this is so hard because we're wired to help protect I mean we're wired as moms to want to protect our children and so when they have like really overwhelming emotions we want to help them escape it okay but actually by avoiding anxiety we help it grow in our children okay and so it's really hard to know how to balance how do we support our children and when do we push them definitely and so I like to think about it on a scale, okay? So, like, what we want to think about is we want to think about 10 maybe being flooded, okay? And one, like, they're, they're, they're okay, they're fine, okay? So, we want to avoid pushing our ch- children when they're flooded, okay? But what we want to do is we want to push them to be a little bit uncomfortable and send them the message that you can do hard things even when it feels really bad. 
And having statements like, I get it. It feels so scary going to this birthday party with a lot of people you don't know or going to this new activity, but I know you can do it. So there might be some tears and there might be some overwhelms, but saying, all right, you got this. The differences between flooding is like, this is a child who's hyperventilating, can't move in the parking lot, right? You wouldn't just like leave them there and go, right? Try to think of like scaffolding, right? So try to think of a smaller kind of exposure that can push them a little bit, like a four, five, six on that scale that can be hard for them, but isn't quite so overwhelming where they're like paralyzed with that fear. If we push our child in that nine, 10 kind of area, a lot of times that can exacerbate their anxiety okay and so you want to try to push kids like and it's different for every kid right so you want to try to push them it's so individual try to sit down with them and and think about things that would be a little bit hard but not super hard okay um and I think one of the best ways to work with anxiety with kids especially kiddos that are like beyond like three, four is to, um, name the anxiety. Okay. So a lot of my kiddos that I work with are like, they name it like booger brain or cloud brain or something like that. And then you can talk back to it. So you're like, when you get to that birthday party or that lesson, what do you think the chances are that booger brain's going to come out? And they're like, oh, pretty big, right? And then you're like, what do you think you'll say to booger brain, right? Be like, leave me alone. I really want to go to my friend's birthday party, right? And be like, what could we do to like, what, what could mom do to help you be bigger than booger brain this time? Or, you know, whatever it might be. It makes it fun and it teases it out of them so they know they can talk back to it. And so it's something we as a family can be angry about, but we're not blaming the child for that, okay? And so I think with um, with teaching kids to talk back to it, not enabling our kids, praising bravery, when they start to be on that scale, they're doing something hard, be like, oh my gosh, you are so brave. And keep a journal of that, right? Keep a journal of those times. So when you're heading to the anxious event, saying things like, um, this reminds me of a time where you were really scared to go to kindergarten, but you did it and you had a great time. And this reminds me of a time where you were so nervous to get your flu shot, but you did it and you were okay and you got a sucker afterwards, right? Um, that brings me to uh, a lot of times incentives are okay in the short term, okay? So that can be like, hey, after you get this shot, we can go get some ice cream or something like that. Those are really, really great in the short term. Long term, if you say something like, if you can go to school five days when you're super anxious or for the whole month when you're super anxious, I will get you a treat. Those kind of long-term things don't work very well and they're kind of a setup for failure for a kid. So keep them short, keep prizes, rewards, really, really small. Um, so you're not constantly upping the ante because their effectiveness is only really short lived. Okay. Um, let's see again, I can't emphasize enough those statements of empathy and confidence. So empathize, empathize, empathize. Don't say it's not scary yet in a flu shot. Say, I know it feels really scary. I know you're really scared right now and I still know you can do it. Okay, because we're really good at saying like, it's fine, it's not scary. And that really minimizes um, what the kids are feeling and keeps them from being able to express to us what they're feeling anxious about. And then we can't really help them with that. If you're feeling like all of this stuff is just like you're trying all the skills and you're feeling like your, your kiddo is just getting worse and worse 
and not we're not getting on top of this. Also, you might just be tired as a parent of helping support your kid in this area. That's when you reach out. Okay, um, I recommend play therapy um, for for like help with kiddos with this. Um, there's also like um, you can also get lots of books. I'm going to include. Um, include some of those in the resource list. Um, but there's books both for like, you know, helping parents feel prepared and also like helping prepare the child as well. I love that. Thanks. I, I have recently just started reading about that whole naming the anxiety thing. And that's such a brilliant concept. I love it. Oh my gosh. I do it for myself all the time too. I won't tell you what my anxiety is named. (laughs) Yeah, I had, which is, this is really funny. I had this little girl before a Karen was a thing. She named her anxiety Karen. And she was like, Karen, leave me alone. She would be like doing her homework and she was like a perfectionist. And she'd be like, I'm trying to get this homework done. Stop telling me I'm not going to be perfect, Karen. And then her mom was like, I don't know why she keeps saying Karen. She started it. Maybe (laughs) she's the one. Yeah, totally. (laughs) Okay, so I'm going to come around with the microphone and um, everybody can ask your questions to Courtney. So who's going to go first? Do you have any recommendations on the difference between sharing, like if your child is sharing feelings, emotions, and just disrespectful? Like Mm. just really struggling with our six-year-old right now of just being unkind and obviously she doesn't do that to anybody else because she feels safe with us at home so affirming mm-hmm. thank you for showing me your true feelings but you're really being unkind and yeah just, what what are your thoughts well, on that? it would really be helpful for you to give me like a recent example so we could kind of talk through it that way um it's almost like a dr <laughs> jekyll mr hyde sort of a thing where she's lovely playful really kind and all of a sudden just mom you're the worst and just almost teenagery I'm like it's too early for that um but but very it's it's normally just the way she speaks and tone and just disrespectful of uh, body language and words of unkindness which is like really easy as a mom to hear right (laughs) not triggering at all um yeah so I think that's 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 a great question, and I think it's something I would recommend is like you always reflect, right? You're really you're really upset right now. Always meet with empathy. If you start with "Stop talking to me like that," do you realize what I've done for you? Right, that kind of thing. They're going to get defensive, and then they're going to kind of they're going to bring it to the next level. And so if you start with like, "Wow, you're really upset at mommy right now," okay, and then you wait for it to bring down a little bit. But I can't let you talk to mommy like that. I can't let you talk to um, whoever, a sibling like that. And so what do you think another way you could say that might be? The other piece of that might be is that I would really encourage you to think about patterns, okay? So my daughter is as sweet as can be, but after school, she is just like a hot mess and like driving her home from school. And she's just somebody she's not. So that Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde kind of thing that you were talking about, like when is that happening? Help her recognize patterns when she's in her calm brain and then try to think about like problem solving things like for a lot of kids this sounds really simple but it's when they're thirsty (laughs) that they get so mean 
And so, like, or hot, okay? And so just trying to, like, be like, man, it seems like you're, like, not, you, you might need some water, okay? But let's think about how you might say that to mom in a different way. Another thing you might say is, like, what do you think that made mom feel like, right, when you talk to me in that kind of voice? Um, just do that kind of reflection. But that reflection can't happen when she's in that kind of, I like to call it the tsunami, like, right? They're not in their rational brain. They're in their emotional brain. And you can probably recognize as a mom when she comes back that's the time to connect and come up with a way she could have done it differently but at first just contain recognize just say I can't let you talk to me like that hi I have a 20 months old and my question is how she's got big emotions and big feelings and opinions but how do you help her recognize what she's feeling when she throws a tantrum tantrum if she doesn't really know what all of those words mean yet that's so so that's such a such a great question and you know one of my favorite I don't know if you're familiar with her work but Janet Lansbury she writes unruffled um the podcast if you all especially have younger kids school age and below her stuff is so so good and as a Christian what I really love is who I feel like we should be as believers representing God um as parents um it's, it's, she's not a Christian, but I feel like her methods are really in line with that. And I say that because you can search on her podcast about so many ways to support your daughter in this, but even if she doesn't understand, um, understand the words or have a lot of experience with it, that's how she learns. So when she has really, really big emotions is, I'm assuming this is your second. Okay. So she's going through, it's a she, right? The, she's going through so much, so many transitions right now. So having those big emotions, you can guess, right? So let's say she's just freaking out and you're like trying to cook dinner or something like that oh, wow, you're feeling really strongly about wanting that toy. I get it. You really want it so bad, and mom can't get it for you. Describe, put words to how she's feeling. Um, and you it, and just continue to describe her, her um, emotions and put words to those. Now, where you, and it's okay for her to have those strong emotions. So often we're like, no, it's time to sit down. It's time to do this. We want them to be pleasant. But we also, we want to encourage that expression. So just name it, like describe it. I, um, somebody said it's like you're a sportscaster, right? You're describing the play-by-play of what's going on. And that helps her be able to make those connections and those names, which will lead to self-control. Okay. Um, and so that would be my recommendation, um, with that, but unruffled, she has so much great stuff on sibling transitions and containment of those big emotions and stuff like that. I think you'll love it. Kind of in addition to that, what about when the behavior is physical and painful, like biting or scratching? Um, I, I try to do the same thing, like naming the notion and then just putting, them down mm-hmm. um, or like removing myself from them but how, how old is the kiddo uh, same 20 21 months 20 okay so again think about our role as um, as parents as being a first responder right so we're being we're being Jesus too to them right so when we see these kids like hit and bite and things like that what it makes us want to do at the beginning be like no we don't bite we don't do that right um and it's oftentimes embarrassing frustrating it brings up a lot of things for us okay but think about your role as a first responder okay we want to go in there with calm with a presence okay but i hear you because i dealt with this issue too of like what do we actually 
actually do to keep it from happening? And that's where if you notice your kiddo biting or doing something unsafe or being unkind, that's where you step in and you physically help them make a good choice. I can't let you hit your sister, so I'm going to stand here to keep you safe, okay? A lot of books and things like that will recommend having a lot of empathy for the, for the victim, Um, I don't agree with that at all. Um, Some books say like, oh, I'm so sorry he bit you or whatever. Because the child that bites is also trying to communicate something to us. And it's usually that there's a lot of dysregulation and that they can't handle stuff. Okay, so the first thing is containment, making sure that they can be safe and the other person is safe. So you got to be there and you got to be aware. Okay, a lot of times it's communicating that they can't handle the situation. Okay, and so what I would recommend then is kind of problem solving when the calm has happened. So being proactive about that. When is the biting happen? Planning it out. Is it when he's there around peers? Is it when they're in the car? And then trying to make it the child be more successful, help the child be more successful in that situation. So can they have other things they can do with their body? Is it a matter of boredom? Try to figure out what's behind that and what they're trying to communicate to you. Um, Did that answer your question? Yeah, you can give me a specific example as well. Um, Well, it's mostly mostly like when I say no you can't do that okay you know and so like I might remove him and then he'll just bite down Mm. on me okay um and I would say like sometimes like when it's really painful like I might yeah ow yeah (laughs) yeah like trying to keep my calm and not be upset but you know and so I've done a mixture yeah Yeah. And so there's, I got to be honest, like I said, I dealt with this too. There's no easy answer to a lot of this. There's not like one magic wand to like make this stop. But the thing is, is that if with your persistence of being like, you're really mad, mom said you can't have this, just continually reflecting that will help them be able to like learn to control that impulse. Okay. I can't let you, I'm going to be here. I'm not going to let you hurt mommy. I'm not going to let you hurt mommy. Just keep saying that because he's trying to communicate something to you of like, I really can't deal with this disappointment. It's dis- So you might say something like disappointment's so hard. I get it. Right. I get it. What about if we go for a walk outside? Right. Um, but again, I wish there was magic wands, but like there is no magic wand in this area. Um, and so keep going with those skills of what you want to communicate to them, naming that emotion. I'm here to keep you safe while you're experiencing this big emotion and I'm not going to let you hurt me. I'm going to be here. And again, try to, usually there's also times where they can handle disappointment more than other times. And so again, you might kind of try to, um, avoid or mitigate those experiences maybe like before nap time or you know things like that as much as possible so um, okay. and one thing that you said to me years ago Courtney that really helped me through stages like this was that uh, kids their their like phases and stages are so much shorter than than ours so like if they're in a really difficult tantrum phase or they're not sleeping or something like that like usually um, if they're really young like that, it's going to be over. Like if you're consistent, like yeah. it, you think you can't handle it anymore, but it's almost over. Yeah. Like it, yeah. it really does like change, like yeah. their behavior will Yeah, that's adjust. a great reminder. Yeah. Do you have any advice for um, like elementary school kids and um, sending a clear and consistent message? For example, like 
when they're at school and something happens, maybe there's a conflict. Um, something I think my husband and I struggle with is they might come home and one day we send the message of, well, just ignore it. The next day it's like, well, did you stand up for yourself? And the next day it's like, well, did you get a teacher involved? It's like, maybe it's because we struggle with like, you know, when do you let it go? When do you talk to a manager? When do you, when yeah. do you, when do you throw a fit? And it's like, is there a clear, consistent message for ignoring, telling, tattling, all like the yeah. phases of how they should respond? I, I would say that there is no clear, consistent <laughs> message, right? Because life is not like black and white, just like you don't have like, a, there's not like a flow chart when to go get the manager, right? Like you have to kind of think about this. Like, is this something I can handle on my own or should I call the police, right? Is this something where I should talk to somebody, you know, in, in, um, in charge? So I think one of the best things you could do is model this for your child and your own life um, so when you're at the store and you know something happens and you do want to go get the manager walk them through that kind of process okay this is teaching our kids how to think in the gray okay um, when you watch a movie when you read a book what do you do you think they should have gotten the teacher then why do you think that should have happened right so they learn really really well through other people versus you kind of talking about that experience because those experiences are usually really emotional and so you might, for example, have a family discussion about like a peer conflict over dinner and be like, what do you guys think she should have done? What do you think would have happened if they would have done, you know, the X, Y, and Z? What would have been the pros? What would have been the cons? And just kind of teaching them to think about that in that gray. Um, I do think there's like obviously like body safety and kind of safety things where you always want to communicate if you feel uncomfortable with the way somebody's touching you or, you know, things like that having those really clear um, um, rules in your home. Um, but with that gray area, I think it's just like, you know, practice, right? And we don't get it right all the time as parents, but I think like walking through that and verbalizing that with our kids is how they learn best about that. Sorry, I have a quick question. Oh, yeah. yeah. Sorry. <laughs> That's okay. Um, so about a month ago, uh, my daughter, sometimes I let her go commando or completely naked in the living room if she has a rash or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had, I had put her potty chair out. Um, you know, she uses it great. She doesn't, no big deal. I didn't expect her to use it. But she did by herself, no prompting, That's nothing. Awesome. And so I was like, oh my gosh, she's ready to potty train. And then once I started the, pro- the potty training process, it was like she didn't want to sit on the potty. She, she got almost like panicky. Mm-hmm. When I tried to get her sit on it, she's a strong little kid. So I could, I was trying to, you know, she's going number two as we speak. How old is she? Trying, she's 22 okay. months. Um, I'm trying to hold her on the potty, and she's she's going number two on the floor, and I'm trying to move her, and she is so strong, I cannot get over there. She's screaming. She doesn't want to sit there, and I'm like, what am I doing wrong? Am I prompting some sort of anxiety over it and yeah. like is she not ready is she ready I can't tell now yeah so I don't know okay so potty training issues are super super complex because uh, as you are experiencing is there's like you know a lot of things that 
like preschools requiring kids to be potty trained before they go and things like that, that are these external pressures um, that can be put on the children and the parents. But I would say you have to read her signs, okay? Because they're, this is something they're going to be doing the rest of their life, right? And a lot of times we kind of get sucked into these like Pinterest things or whatever, like potty training your child in two hours or, you know, whatever. And we're just like, oh my gosh, like, you know, it's going to happen this weekend or whatever. But the biggest thing I can have, I mean, recommend is that you follow her cues. So it sounds like she was curious, but it didn't sound like that she was ready to like have that happen. It added anxiety when she felt like she had to do it every single time. So I would nurture that curiosity. I would keep the potty out. Um, but, you know, you might continue to stay in diapers and kind of talk to her about that and let her kind of lead it, right? So a lot of times kiddos will start to take off their diapers or be like, I don't want to have this on anymore. You know, follow that lead versus like kind of pushing it. So it sounds like she's curious, but that's also still pretty young. I mean, we're not dealing with a 10-year-old here who, you know, um, where that would be a totally different issue. So I would just be like, okay, you're not ready yet, right? Because what happens a lot of times is they start to show these early signs and we're like, you will go poop in the potty, right? And then they're like, no, I'm not ready for that yet. And so just follow their lead um, that she's clearly not ready for that. Even though you kind of feel like you might be backtracking is my guess or like, you know, losing some ground. But by you saying, I see you, you're curious, but you're not quite ready. That connects us with our child during that really important process. Okay, no easy answers again, but again, uh, I also recommend that uh, website um, or that podcast Unruffled for some of those suggestions on that too. Um, you spoke just a little bit earlier about cortisol levels in children. Yeah. I had a condition during pregnancy that as I was researching to figure out how it could affect me in future pregnancies, um, I was reading a medical study where they found children of mothers with this condition had baseline cortisol levels up through age nine, is how far they studied, of 22% higher. How do you, um, I guess, recognize signs of high cortisol levels in children and create an environment where you can start helping to bring those down and parent a child who I guess is probably facing a lot higher anxiety levels yeah. throughout childhood. Okay. Um, the first of all is we're never good parents when we're when we parent out of fear. Okay. And so I first of all I think it's great to be educated, but also I would caution you about like having that be the lens through you see every which you see everything. Right. So I think it's great to be proactive and like prepared for some of this, but also be like. My condition did this. They have high cortisol levels. They'll be plagued with this till they're eight or nine, you know, whatever it might be. But I think these same principles apply, okay? So you can be one of your children's biggest tools during this. So when a, a kid has a high cortisol level, or when we as moms have high cortisol levels, when they're within us, when they're um, outside of us, wherever they are, we they are affected by us, okay? But also we are affected by them. So like we can convey our stress to them, we can also convey our calm to them. And so that's like if you notice your baby just like getting really, really, really upset, you can model that. You can model how do I be calm in this hard time. So like taking a deep breath, even naming for a baby that young, you're so mad right now, you're so hungry, right? Taking those deep breaths, regulating your nervous system will help regulate the baby's nervous system. And so I think just like having the baby be able or 
being able to recognize your baby's triggers and cues will help them be able to do the same thing and regulate more. Um, and so I think just being able to control yourself, naming those things. Um, and again, I think being aware that it can cause some anxiety in yourself, even just looking for it, um, is a good thing to be aware of. Um, but I would say you don't really do anything different. Um, so regarding postpartum, sorry, switching gears. Yeah. <laughs> I have a weird thing, and I've never been able to figure out whether or not it's like my trigger or just basic human needs. So after having a baby, I have some bad anxiety related to the baby's sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, but... That came from, I noticed that if I didn't wash my hair every other day, I was more prone to like break down and like want to crawl underneath the bed and like, or want to run away. Just thoughts of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it gets better mm-hmm. as the baby gets older. Um, but I wasn't sure, is that like a basic human need to wash my hair? Mm-hmm. Or is it like, because it has to be every other day and I can't even trigger it from like, if I wash it at night, it has to be every other day afternoon. Okay. So, um, yes, you could say washing your hair is like a basic human need or like your self care. But what I'm hearing you say is that it, you're kind of having some magical thinking around it. Like if I wash my hair, then I, everything will be okay. Right. You're more calm. I'll be calm if I can wash my hair, okay? And what we kind of want to let you know is that even if you don't want to wash your, if you aren't able to wash your hair, you're going to be okay. And I feel like as moms, especially new moms, we don't have much control and the brain tries desperately to find that control in the strangest things. And that's where a lot of like OCD type symptoms or anxiety type symptoms can come in where we're like, if I just uh, clean the counters enough, then I'll feel safe, right? If I do this, then I'll be okay. But the message I think that like God tells us, right, is that he's got us. He's got this under control. And even if we don't wash our hands is that we can trust in him and it's okay. The message we say to our own brain is that same kind of thing, right? Even if I don't wash my hair, I'll be okay. And so when we get in patterns like this, the best thing I'd recommend you doing is get out of that pattern, okay? So if it's every other day, start by maybe changing it to every day or every two days. Play around with it so that the brain realizes I can be safe and I can be in control even if I'm not doing this weird role, right? Um, So what you're really doing is you're calling it out. This is not what keeps me safe, God is who keeps me safe. God is who I trust in, right? My hair being clean is not who I trust in. It's not what I trust in. And that's weird, but your brain has wired it together with safety and control, and we need to break that connection by you not doing it and you feeling safe and in control. Now, I would caution you that you'll probably feel really intense anxiety at the beginning of when this is happening. And so if it feels like too much, maybe back it off a little bit. Maybe wash your hair every other day one time and then maybe if you wash your hair in the morning maybe just wait the whole day and then do it at night okay so again just like the anxiety symptoms with um with children we don't want to flood you okay especially because you're taking care of little people okay and so what we want to do is we want to push you just a little bit to deal with that uncertainty and that lack of kind of safety connection for a little bit but not like overwhelm you did that answer your question okay Thank you, Courtney, so much for being with us. This was amazing. Loved hearing from you.
We are going to segue into our discussion time now, and Courtney's going to stick around, so if anyone wants to catch her and talk to her, ask her a question, and then I'll just come back up in a little while to um, transition to have our prayer time.